everyone. Thanks for stopping back in. Welcome to part two of our banjo segment, The Playas. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shudler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. The excitement continues. Part two of our banjos uh, podcast. This is really exciting. We're going to be talking about the players who have made the banjo famous and vice versa. And it's really cool because uh, today we're going to be hearing from several people who are really iconic in the field of banjo development and, um, my gosh, icons and heroes. So um, maybe we should just jump right in. Michelle, who do we have first? So first up, we have a couple pretty popular people talking about how they got into the industry. The first one you're going to hear from is Sonny Osborne. What was the first instrument that you picked up? A uh, guitar. Um, my dad bought Bobby a um, Regal guitar and um, I think he paid $40 for it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, he taught Bobby the chords and then Bobby showed me and he showed me the chords too. I guess Bobby mainly showed me the chords. My brother Bobby showed me the chords uh, to a guitar and um, I don't know. I never did. I wasn't that interested in it. I didn't want to go on with it so to speak and Bobby did and uh, he learned. Bobby was a lot better musician than I was um, and he learned to play the guitar pretty well but the guitar was first. What sort of uh, aspirations did you have as a kid? Um, I don't know. Um, not much of anything. I just a kid, kid. Um, I liked baseball and I wanted to play football. <clears throat> I think I could have played uh, some <clears throat> major uh, college football had I gone on to college. I was a big kid and uh, strong and uh, but I got interested in uh, the banjo at about the age of 11 and uh, that kind of took my interest away from everything else. I just I was what um, the smitten I think would be the right word. I was smitten the day I saw one played for the first time and uh, and stayed smitten until I stopped playing <laughs> in 2003. <laughs> How was those early days for you, gigging around and getting your sound together and so on? Well, the, the banjo music never, there was never anything hard about it. It was always simple, easy for me to learn how to play. It just seemed like it was just laying there, just, just in front of me and uh, all I had to do was just pick it up and play it. It, it was never hard. Uh, I didn't take any lessons and 
nobody taught me anything. My brother showed me a, a couple of things that uh, I was lacking as far as my playing was concerned when I was 11 or 12 years old. But after that, it just all fell into place. And um, I don't know, it just seemed like the thing to do. And just the thing to do. I didn't have anything else. And like I said, I didn't have an education. I couldn't do anything other that I was, what, 16 years old and I didn't know anything. All I knew was music. I knew how to ride a bicycle, walk, play football. I knew that, but I couldn't do any of those. And so uh, Bobby was in the Marine Corps. When he got out, we went to work in uh, WROL in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, that would be November the 6th of 1953, yeah, and we went to work for Kaz Walker, Bobby, myself, and Enos Johnson played guitar, and L.E. White played the fiddle, four of us, and uh, we stayed up there till June of 54, I guess it was, and uh, we came home, and then we got with Jimmy Martin, who was playing in Hamilton, I guess at the time, Hamilton, Ohio. And uh, I think that was about the time we went to Detroit then, to WJR in Detroit. And you see, if, if, if we hadn't been lucky, and I say, I, I use that word in a different sense than you might think, if we hadn't been lucky enough to move ahead on the ladder each time we moved, each time we changed, we moved up a rung. If we had stayed the same, then I would have thought seriously about quitting and doing something else. But I didn't know what else I could do, get a job somewhere, you know, something like that. But like when when we when he got out of service, we went to work at WROL. Well, from WROL, we went to WJR in Detroit, which is a 50,000-watt station. And Bobby and Jimmy Martin <clears throat> and I, and Jimmy had a little bit of a name already, <clears throat> and Bobby and I were creating a name, and we're known somewhat, but not very much. Locally, we were known. And uh, while we were at Detroit then, we got a, an RCA Victor record contract that moved us another rung at the ladder. And each one got a little bit better. And um, I think it had not been for that, we probably would have thought seriously about not furthering it, going on with it. But uh, each one got supposedly a little bit better. And we didn't think about in terms of money or wealth or anything like that at that time. We just thought about survival. And we were having fun playing music and all that. And that's what we knew was music. And so we were having fun doing it. And uh, then uh, I guess we went from there. We left uh, Detroit in uh, 55, I guess it was. And uh, that was that was a, a kind of a low point, but we went to work then in Wheeling with uh, Charlie Bailey, and that was another step up 
from where we were. And uh, the Wheeling Jamboree was a big show at that time. I mean, it was rivaling the Grand Ole Opry and Louisiana Hayride and uh, Big D Jamboree in uh, Texas. And so um, we were moving up, up the scale just a little bit, and so we felt good about that. And we were okay until we met the Wilburn Brothers at a show in... Um, Oh, New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey, and uh, we had had we got and well to go back in 1956 we got an MGM recording contract, and we had Ruby and all that stuff on MGM, and it helped us a great deal because it furthered the our name, and uh, it expanded you know a little bit more than before and so we were doing okay but uh, <clears throat> then we met the Wilburn brothers and uh, our career had gone up to a point and stopped and uh, it was getting a little bit serious we met the Wilburn brothers and Doyle Wilburn gave Bobby a, tar a card and said if you guys ever want to make a change call me and uh, we were in East Patterson, New Jersey, I think, playing a club up there. And uh, we had we had stopped, just dead. And uh, Bob, we were in a hotel room, and uh, we were. It was about two thirty, three o'clock in the morning, and we were just talking about. You know, we're not going anywhere. We're just, we're nowhere. And he said, you know what? Doyle Wilburn gave me a card and said, if we ever wanted to change to call him, he said, let's try that. So he got the card out and I called Doyle. And <laughs> Doyle, Doyle used a couple of expletives and he said, do you know what time it is? And I said, I hadn't even thought about it. You just said to call. And uh, he, he, uh, Call me a few names that that uh, you wouldn't use on your children. I'll put it that way. <laughs> and, uh, uh, he said uh, uh, that was uh, Wednesday, I think it was. He said, "Call me when you get home Sunday." And uh, so I did. And uh, we came from Dayton, then Ohio. We came to Nashville, and. Uh, he had several things set up, and we were going to sign with our agency. And uh, we both told him, we said, we we need to make a change, and we need the Grand Ole Opry really bad, really bad. And he said, I tell you what, you sign with our agency, our publishing company, and he said, then we'll do the rest. And he said, you give me 18 months, and I and I'll either get you on the Grand Ole Opry or you can go elsewhere. And uh, so we did, and uh, he got us a uh, Decca recording contract, and uh, in 13 months we were members of the Grand Ole Opry, and uh, that solved a whole lot of our problems right there, mentally and, uh, and financially too. We moved to Nashville, and uh, things picked up quite a bit. 
That was Sonny Osborne, and I remember sitting on his stoop out of his house in Nashville, Tennessee, and setting up the camera for his interview, and just thinking to myself, wait a minute, this is Sonny Osborne. (laughs) (laughs) My goodness, what an amazing player, absolutely. Just so influential. And uh, um, just a a special note to... uh, Johnny Eberly, who's passed away now, but uh, my dear friend who uh, worked at Americana uh, Mastering Company out there in Dixon, Tennessee, he was the one who set this uh, interview up and made that happen, and I'm very, very grateful to all of his help. And Sonny was just great to talk with. What a wonderful guy, and I'm so glad that we had the opportunity because in thinking about this podcast, I'm thinking about some of the folks that we're hearing from and the milestones, sort of the benchmarks of where the banjo was accepted by the public in a different way. You know, first really kind of for our world, Earl Scruggs and changing that whole style. And then there was Pete Seeger who introduced it with folk music. And then there was the Osborne brothers who gave us Rocky Top Tennessee and introduced it to a whole new audience and and then there was ronnie cox who played it uh in the uh, <laughs> deliverance and i mean on and on and on it goes and all of these guys are a part of our collection now and it's just so wonderful to take the opportunity to recognize these benchmarks and then some of the smaller accomplishments uh maybe not as well known but in the world of cajun and um zydeco music uh this next guy uh, michael Doucette really helps define the fiery feeling of those styles of music as played by the banjo and just an amazing passion. And well, I guess fire is really a good, good word for him. When you hear that music, you're just, you're not sitting still. <laughs> you are not on your hands, I guarantee you. So here's Michael Doucette talking about how he got into the music industry. My cousin and I were just playing this little bar. It was, I was, I just finished, you know, graduating from college. I was going to go to graduate school. So we were just having fun. And this promoter from France came and he was looking for young musicians. Well, yeah, I mean, and so he said, do you want to go to France for two weeks? I said, sure, man, why not, you know? Well, I stayed for six months. And what happened there to me, it was, they were having, France was having, going through their folk revival as America was in the 60s. And they looked at us as the youngest form of creative French folk songs, unbeknownst to us, that this thing had, had I mean, even, we were so isolated, we had to think, what, people in France know about this, you know? And so it went from there to Canada, et cetera. And for me, that was fun. I mean, that, that, was, that was one of the best times of my life, but then it made me realize that, man, if you don't come back and learn this music and learn and be able to teach this music to people, it's gonna be gone. And that's sort of what, what it, it revived us before that. I mean, we, we played this music because we realized when, when a relative died who played music or sang music, when they died, not only did you miss this person physically, but all their history and, and oral history and, and musical talent was gone. So we were kind of adamant about recording this. So, you know, I, I really got down to learn how to play the violin and the fiddle be able to transcribe it and went out and got a couple of grants from the NEA, went out and transcribed a lot of musicians and then continued to do that and worked with uh, the late Dewey Balfe in the schools, bringing this music to the schools and I went all the way up to the university and I taught for six years. Um, it is called French Musical in Louisiana, Opera Zydeco, you know, it was the course. And so, um, 
You know, I mean, and but then you never know because you're always, you know, fighting this tide. I mean, the people dying, and you know, the interest is not there and stuff like you just doing because of this passion. That was basically the passion for the decade of the '70s. At the end of the '70s, um, two of the Balfour brothers died uh, tragic accident. Will and, and Rodney, who were a big part of this music, and then. As you have the next year, Paul Prudham, who was this little chef from Opelousas, went to New Orleans and burned a redfish, and pfft, national phenomenon. So he took us to New York and things like that. And we were just on, on some kind of uh, wavelength or something like that to, to just be in the right place at the right time. I mean, like when we went back to France, we went there in 74, we went there back in 76, and we recorded an album there. Not because we wanted to, we were just playing on a little... Um, uh, mouche on the Seine, and this guy comes up to us and says, nice music, he says, do you have a record? And I said, no, we don't have a record, we don't even have a name. Would you like to make a record? We said, sure. And he was the president of EMI, Pate Macroni, so that's how we started. Mm. And then we played the National Folk Festival, and we played Jimmy Carter's inauguration in 77. So for us, it was always there. But then, you know, just playing in Louisiana, you know, getting people involved in this thing, realizing what treasure they had. And a lot of this, we did a lot did a lot of research, I mean, both university and academic level, and just going out to people. And then I think it was it was after we were doing that, it was, it was in, the, we all had jobs, it was about 86, um, then I get this thing, I said, you know, we need to bring this to America, I mean, really, to do it to the United States, because this is North American music, it's music from here. So we set out, to conquer America, because we played 36 countries before. I mean, we did all these USIA tours and things. But it was amazing. To, we've played every state in the Union more than three times, singing in French, which is like, what's going on? And I think, and we have so many people that have come to us, you know, after and said, never heard of this music, didn't have any idea, loved it, eventually moved to Louisiana. So it, it's a contagious music. I think it's just a real music. It's music from the heart. It's kind of like blues. But there's no like barriers, and everybody who plays creates the music. Like when I was doing the survey, I'd go to, we have civil parishes in Louisiana. And let's say I'd go 40 miles away and find another fiddle player where he would play almost the same tune, but not quite. And everybody had their own sort of a technique and style. And that was amazing to do that, to kind of arrange that and to see how that developed. And now it's, it's, it's mostly, it, it's much more, um, homogenous. And that's a, because of a lot of reasons, just Americanization, television. When we, uh, in the 1970s, they did the U.S. census, population census, and it so said there were over a million French-speaking people in Louisiana, which is amazing, because you look at Louisiana, there's only 22 parishes that speak French. Well, when they did the 2,000-year census, there were less than 100,000 French-speaking people. So with that, the music goes. But then the music became popular. Uh, Zotico, which is like, um, you know, our next door neighbor, basically, it's, it's a Creole, French Creole music, very popular, and people clipped in here, and everybody would share this music, it was no big deal, but then it, it starts becoming, you know, commercial and stuff like that, so then you have these pop-up places that offer this stuff, um, you know, like a supper clubs, so it, the music has changed and the culture has changed, but at least the basis is really there, and I'm glad that we did what we did when we did it. So once again, that was Michael Doucette, and before him, Sonny Osborne, talking about how they got into the music industry. And right now, we'd like to give you a little treat in between sections of this podcast. We're going to hear from our special guest, Bill Kilpatrick, from the Museum of Making Music again, and he's going to be playing some more banjo for you. So here he is. <laughs> 
Okay, that was our good friend Bill Kilpatrick from the Museum of Making Music, and I'm so glad that he could stop by and hang out. Boy, it's great to have live music and such great passion. And we're so lucky here at the NAM headquarters in Carlsbad, California, to have a whole group of people that can stop by and uh, play for us and, and add their own input. That's really an extra element of uh, excitement for us. And as well as digging into the uh, the archives here at NAM and the many interviews that we have uh, captured over the years. Uh, a few minutes ago when I was talking about some of the big milestones, my goodness, I got to tell you a few more. <sighs> Bring I it on. I, for I forgot Roy <laughs> Clark. Oh, my gosh. Hee-haw. I mean, so many people watched that television show, and that was their introduction to the banjo, is listening to this guy on that television show and seeing it. You know, it's kind of like, you know, what MTV did. It it showed people actually playing the instrument. And for hee-haw, country music really wasn't broadcast a whole lot on television. Certainly the Grand Old Opry was always on radio. So this was a really great opportunity for people to really see, wow, okay, that's that instrument. And my goodness, watch Roy's fingers flying <laughs> all over that thing. I mean, what a speedy player that guy is. And then Bob Shea is another guy that uh, we didn't talk about in this episode, but we need to. He was one-third of the Kingston Trio and playing the banjo on all those big, big hits, Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley, and all of them uh, in the early uh, 60s, late 50s. Uh, so shout out to him. And um, Otis Taylor, one of the great uh, blues players who also incorporated roots music in his career, uh, still going strong, touring all over the place, but just an amazing, amazing musician. And then the last one of many I also wanted to mention is the late, great Ralph Stanley, who, for those who watched Oh Brother, know this guy. And uh, how what a delight it was to hang out with him in his museum right outside of Bristol, uh, Virginia. Just an amazing guy. Great history. So having incorporated these interviews in our collection uh, and now today picking out just a few of them, I wanted to make sure we shout it out to those guys. So um, maybe you guys can remind everyone how we can get to I knew that's what you were about mm -hmm, to say it Michelle. was I know it's still my thunder no. sorry so Michelle what were you gonna say no I mean <laughs> it just seems like we have so many great interviews that are not included in the podcast that I'm sure people would love to hear Mike why don't you tell them how to get there well if you'd like to see any of these interviews that we are talking about in this episode you can head over to nam namm.org slash library click on the advanced search button right there and you can search banjo search for the tag banjo and it will show you all of these interviews oh and Mac, Mac Yasuda was <laughs> the first Japanese guy to ever play on the Grand Old Opry we interviewed him oh and John McEwen of course the banjo player for the nitty gritty dirt band we can't forget about him and Dan Levinson one of the great teachers he's got method books out there he's an amazing guy sort of the one man band going around and just the Pied Piper of the banjo fantastic guy anyway the list goes on. Speaking of passion for what they do. <laughs> I know, so, someone's a little bit passionate over here. <laughs> so now we got to talk a little bit about bluegrass. Um, <laughs> because our next guy is J.D. See, I was trying to make a I transition. Love it. it was perfect. J.D. Crow is next. And um, shout out to uh, Harry Bickle for uh, arranging this interview years ago with us. Uh, nice guy, wonderful person. We got to go to his home in uh, Kentucky, uh, laid back, 
relaxed. And I was a little nervous, actually, because it's JD. I mean, I saw his name on album covers my whole life, and he was so nice. His wife came over with cookies, and that always makes me feel better. And it was just a really a wonderful afternoon, as you will hear, um, just a really passionate and uh, wonderful guy, and sort of an unsung hero, really. I mean, he's been on a lot of albums. He's influenced a lot of people. And um, it's always great to have the opportunity to share his career in the hopes that it will broaden uh, his legacy. So here's J.D. Crow. What uh, banjo were you playing? Was that the Gibson at that time? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was an old one. I'd found that Gibson, that particular banjo in uh, Monroe, Michigan, in a, a repair shop. It was a older fella, luthier. And all he did was, I think, repair guitars. And uh, I had gotten one somehow. A friend of mine uh, had a Martin guitar. It was a nice one. And I won't go into tell how it happened, but anyway, the top got smashed, totally just bursted, you know. And he was going to throw it away. And I said, no. I said, let me have that. And I, I, offered, I said, I'll give you 50 bucks for it, you know, just because it was to pieces. He said, no, man, I just take it, go with it. If you want to try to get it fixed, you can have it. Well, I did. I took it. Well, Jimmy took the guitar. And I told Jimmy, I said, if you get it fixed, you can have it. But I didn't need it. And I found that banjo in that shop. Unbeknowings, just walked in there, it laid. And I got to questioning the 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 guy there about it, and he said he had gotten it because somebody owed him some money, so he took the instrument. But it was all apart; it wasn't together. But I knew what it was, and I wound up trading an extra banjo that I'd had for that banjo, and I kept it. And that happened, I think it's either 56 or 57 is when that happened. And that's one I played all the time with Jimmy. And I had it until, oh, last year. And I finally sold it to a good friend of mine who's, of course, got it and going to keep it. I still have access to it if I need it or I want it. What was unique? What did you like most about that banjo? It just suited what I was doing, the way I was playing. Jimmy loved it. He loved the sound of it, you know, and the more I played it, the better I liked it. And, of course, you got to realize that time you were lucky to have one instrument because money was tight, you know, and I'd seen others that uh, that were for sale, but I couldn't afford them, you know, and they, they were, there's some I could have bought them for 300 or 250 300 dollars. But you got to realize back then, two or three hundred dollars is hard to get. You just didn't carry that kind of money in your pocket back then, you know. And so, therefore, I, I had an extra one, but it was one I acquired along the way, and it wasn't a real good banjo. I could get it was a spare, is what it was, and so I always kept one of those in case something happened to your good one. You had at least something to play, you know. Go ahead and make the gig, whatever. But um, 
that's uh, kind of the way all that developed. So what uh, have you come to learn about what makes a banjo special? What, like what's about, how, what can be different from one banjo to another that can create something different? Well, the uh, banjos and all these pickers and McQuarrie Scruggs played a 1934 Granada, uh, and that was the holy grail of the banjos because I always said if he'd played a whatever style or whatever brand it was, that's what we'd all would want. You know, that's that's just kind of the way you follow the pattern, see. <laughs> but luckily he played, he knew what the best was. And of course, that's, and that's what I had. Uh, an old flathead, they called them, they had raised heads. And they had flatheads, flatheads were a lot louder. You know, they designed them from different, different reasons, of course. And, uh, but uh, I run on that one, like I said, and I knew what it was. <laughs> I had no idea what it would sound like. I just knew it would probably be good, and it was. And the longer I kept it, the better it sounded. So. Uh, Did it have a resonator? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. It had everything. It didn't have a neck on it. Did not have a head on it. All the parts were down in the resonator, <laughs> covered with a lot of dust. No kidding. Yeah. Do you have any idea what vintage it was? It's a 1933. So I knew that I had the serial number in it, the whole deal. The whole deal. Wow. Yep. So did you construct it, or did the repairman put it together? I had a guy made a neck for me, oh. and I knew how to put it all back together. Uh -huh. Yeah. That's neat. Yep. So did you do your own um, tech work then? So no, I had it, it, it had no. I couldn't do that. I didn't want to get into that. I could tear them down, put them back together, but as far as building the necks and other things that had to be done, uh, no, I didn't do that. I had people that knew how to do that, do the, you know, put, build the necks. Yeah, yeah. Back then, there was not a whole lot of people doing that. You usually had to send them back to Gibson to get any work done on. Then it took you three, three to six months to get the instrument back, you know? And uh, a lot of people didn't want to do that. And uh, so people just started building necks and working on different instruments, different things. And uh, so, and now there's a lot of guys that build necks, build the whole instrument. So that was J.D. Crow talking a little bit about the types of instruments that he's played and the difference between the different string of banjos and how they make different sounds. Um, on that topic, next up is Earl Scruggs. Do you remember the first model uh, banjo that you got? Well, I, I started with an old open back. I didn't go very far with it till I got a, a well, a, I'll explain the open back. It was my father's, my dad's old banjo, but uh, it, it was mainly just a solo instrument, didn't have much volume to it. So I got a a banjo from a pawn shop in Spartanburg, South Carolina. It was a RB11 Gibson. That was the best banjo that I'd ever had at that point, and boy, it just made me want to pick more and more. So 
my mother, uh, I think I mentioned it before, I, I wanted to go into the business, but I didn't want to leave home. But my mother said, uh, after I got that banjo, she said, I was going to have to figure out some way to make some money to help pay for that banjo. So I thought, well, I, I'll just try to do that. So that's when I got a job and came here to Nashville and wow. been in the business ever since. Tell us about your guitars. Uh, any particular guitar model that you've enjoyed? Well, I play a D18 and I also play a, a, a Gibson, a switch between the, the, the two. And uh, I don't play enough guitar to uh, well, I, I like a good guitar, and I got one. It, it suits me real well. So mainly a D18 uh, uh, Martin guitar, and I also have a Gibson that I like real well. I like how Michelle just casually name-dropped Earl Scruggs, <laughs> and it's just, yeah, you know, just yeah. this little banjo player you may have <laughs> heard of. There you go. And next is Earl Scruggs. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Yeah, I remember uh, talking to Roy Clark, and he said, um, on the fifth day, God made Earl Scruggs. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how people feel about Earl. Oh, my goodness. Just an amazing influence, let alone player, and so imaginative. I was trying to figure out how do you really describe Earl Scruggs, he redefined how you play guitar, I mean the banjo, and the way you strum, and the way you approach it, and the ideas that you put into it. So much so that a lot of people like me kind of simplify it and say there was old-timey old music, and then there was Earl Scruggs. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing what he did for the banjo and for music, and just the creativity that he put into it inspired so many other instrumental instrumentalists. I remember talking to Charlie McBride, a bass player, plays jazz, and he was saying how he was influenced by Earl Scruggs. I mean, this is an amazing thing. And to have the opportunity to have talked to him is, is one thing, but to listen and learn from what he had to say is quite another. And so I really appreciate the fact that we could could play that. And it was such a subtle little thing that I just had to stop and say, that was Earl Scruggs. Wow. So should we name drop somebody else? I think it's my turn to name drop. Okay. So on the same subject of talking about instruments played, here's Pete Seeger. I would say that five string banjo production had literally stopped uh, in the 1930s. Uh, I played an S.S. Stewart, uh, which I bought in a pawn shop for $5 in 1939. And uh, I broke it trying to jump off a freight train uh, and uh, didn't know how to do it properly. And I bought a second one. Now I paid $10 for this one. Uh, my brain's gone. I can't remember the name of the company, but it was a well, it was at one time a well-known banjo company. Uh, was it vegan? Yeah, Viga. Viga. Viga, that's right. Viga. Yeah. Uh, Viga. Not vegan. Viga. Not vegan. No. It gives it a different, <laughs> you wouldn't have a goat skin on a right, vegan right, banjo. Right, right. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I believe uh, Deering now owns the Viga brand. Yeah. Right. You play some instruments that are 
kind of handmade by small builders, I think. I know the 12-string guitar that you have was uh, built. A man in England invented a 12-string guitar braced in a new kind of way. And it got some of the power which Leadbelly had with his 12-string guitar. He played a Stella. Mm -hmm. And uh, in this climate, however, they all tended to break. And a man who was repairing him decided to strengthen a couple of those braces uh, and he still kept the triangular hole which the man in England had but he strengthened it and made a 12-string guitar which worked wonderfully. Mm. However, I'm uh, careless. He had to rebuild it three times. One time it was because Somebody who didn't like my politics saw my guitar case covered with slogans. Uh, and he opened the guitar case and you could see the imprint of his foot it went smash. Mm. Broke the, uh, the front of the guitar in. And this man in Connecticut rebuilt it. Then I leaned my car, my, leaned my guitar against the side of my car, but rolled my car six feet ahead and now it fell on the ground. Then I backed my car up. <laughs> Smashed. Mm -hmm. I've, I think this happened three times. Somebody made up a song, pity me, uh, take pity on me, I am Pete's guitar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was Pete Seeger, and before that, Earl Scruggs. And I'm just trying to think of how those guys um, complement each other as far as pioneers of the banjo. I mean, I think of Earl as this intense, really fast player, just all over the place and innovating, innovating, innovating. And as soon as he's done innovating, he thinks of another idea to innovate some more. <laughs> That's what I think about Earl Scruggs and then influencing everybody. And, and Pete, I think, is, you know, tall, lean, lanky, slower, you know, methodical. You know, how can I use this instrument to convey a message? You know, there's a, there's a civil rights issue here. There's unjust happening in our world. What can I do with this instrument that is going to make people listen to that message and methodical about it? You know, playing slower with intent, adding words. You know, I mean, two iconic people that made the same instrument do different things for whole the whole world and from not just I was going to say for that generation for every generation for everything that's happened since there's been an influence from both of those guys and um, just an absolute um, amazing thought is them together you know I know that they met each other but I, I would have loved to have been there for that mm, yeah <laughs> it would have been cool if they played together yeah, too no doubt. that would have been something to see 
And so now we have another little treat for you. Uh, we were able to talk to Bill Kilpatrick earlier from the Museum of Making Music, and he brought up some thoughts about all of these guys, Pete Seeger, Earl Scruggs, and J.D. Crow. So here's Bill talking about that. Anybody of my vintage is probably familiar with the Bonnie and Clyde movie that came out in about 1968. It starred Warren Beatty and uh, Faye Dunaway, <clears throat> and uh, the soundtrack uh, was put together by Flatt and Scruggs. Hmm. So that was my introduction to uh, Earl Scruggs and that amazing banjo playing of his that really was the benchmark at that point, I think. Um, not a true banjo player, so I'm sure a true banjo player would say, mm, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> As Tony Trishka, I'm sure he might have a different opinion. But for me, that's the first time I heard the banjo kick in as like this, wow, what a fiery instrument. Uh, and his song Foggy, Mount Foggy Mountain Breakdown was used as sort of the getaway, you know, when they were... They'd rob the bank, and they were taken off into the hills. That was sort of the getaway music. Uh, <laughs> now, I don't know if uh, that was written specifically for the movie or if that was a song that had already been written. I'm not sure I think sure it was that. already existed. Already in existence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So anyway, that uh, wow, that, that opened my ears. Isn't that amazing? Uh, that. Yeah. It was, like, perfect, too. It was the oh, perfect yeah. song for yeah. that, you know, the getaway scene and yeah. so on. Yeah. It's, it's got that get up and go, we got to get out of here now energy to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, I'm going <clears> to... <throat> I'm going to admit to something here. I made my own gangster movie when I was a senior in high school. And <laughs> Did you play Foggy the Mountain Breakdown uh, played heavily into that, uh, into that soundtrack. <laughs> How much will it cost to see a copy of that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a super 8-millimeter film projector? <laughs> no, but I'm motivated all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, speaking of Earl Scruggs, I mean, what an amazing influence this guy had. I yeah. mean, just really changed basically the mentality of how we listen to banjo music. I mean, before that, we all now refer to anything before Earl Scruggs as old-timey. Right. You know, there right. was a certain style yeah. before him, of course, yeah. and then, then it was him. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just amazing that one individual could have had that big impact yeah, just turn the corner really. mm -hmm. uh, now by old timey i think what you're talking about is the early jazz sort of banjo strummers yeah. that were playing in the early jazz combos and they would uh primarily use what was called a tenor banjo so it's a four string banjo and it's tuned in fifths actually just like a viola so the tuning of that instrument would be okay so as a guitar player, that scares the heck out of me because I've been playing tuned in force for <laughs> decades, and to, to make that change would be pretty difficult. But stylistically, it was a lot of... Um Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Shout out to Mr. San Croix, who was with Louis Armstrong doing that right. sort of thing. Exactly. It, yeah, yep, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that really kind of drove the bus rhythmically, mm. in my opinion. Right. Uh, yeah. And uh, as we all know, banjo helped the pr the plectrum players be able to be heard above the trumpets, trombones, trap kits, and piano. Right. Because uh, this is sort of pre-amplification, so. Uh, as I say, there's two dynamic levels of a banjo. There's loud and louder. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting side note. Uh, when I interviewed Alvino Ray, who later became very famous for a big band and having the steel pedal guitar, 
he told me that he took the um, receiving part of the his mom's um, candlestick uh, telephone and put it in the banjo as early as I think he said 1924. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. 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 <laughs> So it, it's it's pretty amazing, really, with the advent of electricity. People are thinking, well, how can we, how can we utilize this in instruments? Uh, when I first came on board the museum, which is now nine years, if you can believe that, there was a special exhibit uh, called "On uh, right. the Beginnings of Electricity," I believe, something of that nature. And I'm pretty sure there was a 1908 banjo that somebody had electrified. Mm. I'm sure it was very crude, but the idea was there. Right. So yeah, amazing. As as they could do wow. it. Okay, that was great. Anything else? Do we want to say anything about Pete Seeger or play anything else? I mean, there's no denying that Pete Seeger was a huge influence on the folk movement uh, of the 50s and into the 60s, for sure. Hmm. Uh, And to me personally, again, having grown up in that era, that was music that really had had a vibrant reason for being. You know, we were sort of waking up to social change that needed to happen, hmm. questioning the status quo, which is what a lot of these songs are about. And they weren't doing it in an aggressive way necessarily. Country Joe and the Fish, yeah, maybe a little more aggressive, <laughs> but uh, Pete Seeger and fellows like him were singing these beautiful songs. You know, how many years must a man, I'm sorry I'm terrible with lyrics, but uh, no, talking understand. about all the things that go on and on in the world, how long right. is this going to have to happen before hmm. we wake up and realize there's a better way? So. You know, the kudos to him, I think, are infinite, really. Yeah. 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 Well said. Yeah. The next segment up was going to be a little bit about the influences and who influenced all these players. But one common thread kept coming up throughout every single one of these interviews that was done, and that was Earl. Um, he really made a major contribution to all the banjo musicians out there. So first up, you're going to hear from J.D. Crow talking about how Earl Scruggs has influenced him. And then you're going to hear a little bit from Earl about his thoughts on what people have said about him and his feelings about music. Before I heard Earl, I knew about banjos. But the banjos that I knew and the people that I knew and watched play them, that to me was, they were all comedians. It was like banjo was a part of a comedic act, you know, an act that they used the banjo and with a comedy routine. And they played frailing or old time style. And I never got into that. I respect it. It's hard to do, you know. No. Once I got into it and playing the banjo itself, and uh but uh I never did try to do that that much. And that to me was the way and I never really cared for it at the time. But when I heard Scruggs the way he played I'd never heard a banjo played like that. That was totally different. So he came along, in my opinion, the banjo then was an obscure instrument, and he brought it to the forefront just as much as a guitar, electric, acoustic, whatever. But the banjo is now a forefront of an instrument right in there. So if not believe it, just listen to the different styles of banjo players anymore. How do you how do you think he did that? Was it the way he was playing, or it, what he was it, playing? That's what he heard. Yeah. That's what he heard. Mm. It was different. You know, I I think he was a genius, really. I mean, it took because he had no one to follow. Oh, he had somebody 
was trying to do that, maybe that give him the idea. But he perfected it the way he wanted it to hear it. You know, and to me, there's never been any better. Probably never will. Did as far you as I'm concerned. Oh, I knew him well. The all, the, the whole group. Huh. I knew all of them. I knew him well. What was his personality like? Very laid back. Huh. Nice. But, you know, he was he's laid back. Yeah. Was Lester the same? Lester was a lot more talkative. <laughs> he was, was a front guy. Oh, yeah. 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 But he really wasn't really outgoing that much either. Hmm. I mean, they were just cool, but they were cool. Yeah. You know? They were business people. S what it, smart. Yeah. yeah. They were very smart, very intelligent. Mm. Yeah. You, you know, and, uh, but they played. The music that, uh, to me, will never be equaled, because they had that soul, they had the feel, and nobody has that feel like that. That's what makes that music. You Were know. there a couple of tunes in particular of theirs that you gravitated towards? All of them. <laughs> really? Yeah, I'm truth. All of them. That's neat. Really. It was interesting to see back then when. They were how they were playing in the 50s, and then the 60s evolved. They changed a little, just a little, but they still had that pizzazz in that music. Still had it, but just a little different. Then the 70s and 80s even got a little more different, but they still sounded. You know, they they had it. Whatever they did, it was good. They did it together. You know, but I was partial actually probably to the earlier type music they were doing. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. What an incredible era. Yeah, I think probably as far as I'm concerned, I have seen the best. I've seen the best, I've heard the best, I've played with the best. And, you know, where do you go from there? <laughs> Good point, yeah. No doubt you know that uh, many people, many music historians and musicians all around the world point to those recordings and say that that was the birth of something very, very unique and special. And it has been the influence of many a musician since that point. How do you feel when you hear people talking about those recordings like that? Well, I think anybody will feel good to hear remarks like that. I, I never set out to try to prove anything. I just wanted to pick, and uh, but uh, when people started admiring my picking and enjoying it, and come up and tell me that they uh, had come miles to hear me pick, that made me feel feel real great. To start a show with Lester Flat, it gave us a chance to put our own thoughts into how we wanted to manage run a show and what we tried to do and did do it ran through uh, professional in other words uh, when we said we'd leave at two o'clock in the afternoon we everybody was treated alike including me and Lester we'd we'd leave it to and if you didn't come and be ready to go you just got left so <laughs> we we tried to and I still do run a show with uh, understanding management and not ask 
the guys in the band to do something I wouldn't do myself. I, you know, it's just a thing that uh, it's a situation where it's uh, like a family situation. Now, I never got the chance to meet Lester. Do you have any particular memory that is a good example of what sort of guy he was? Well, he was a fine guy. He was a good MC. He could handle the show real well. And he knew an awful lot of good songs. He was a good lead singer and played a good guitar. So it, with him uh, and uh, with my picking and the group we put together, Mike Wiseman was in the group, mm. Jim Shoemate and uh, uh, young guy that played uh, upright bass, uh, Cedric Rainwater, we, we put a show together that just was almost unbeatable. We were all young and I started writing, writing tunes like Foggy Mountain Breakdown wrote that and that's always been a much requested tune. It's one of my most requested tune even today. Mm. So uh, it just seemed like the whole world opened up to us with the band that we had so we really did some good business and and had a lot of fun doing it you know mm, that's wonderful what a lovely way to end such a fantastic segment of our podcast yeah it's always cool to see the people that a lot of folks look up to talking good about another guy that he looks up to mm -hmm. just kind of like seeing the passion and the fandom within all these guys it's yeah it's cool to see that perspective and you know for earl i'm really glad that his legacy is way more than the first introduction a lot of people had to him which was the beverly hillbilly yeah. theme song <laughs> yeah. you know which is great and fun <laughs> but you know there's so much more to it and i think it's so wonderful as you guys have said that he had such an influence from two people who are very articulate about what they learned from him, why he was important, and what they did with it for their own careers. Neat stuff. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Remember to tune in in two weeks for our next episode of the podcast, and we will talk more to you then. <laughs> Not <laughs> bye -bye. see you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, God, through that again. Not see you. Because <laughs> it's audio. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Michelle Shedler. And Dan Del Fiorentino. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, you can send those over to library at nam.org.